0: The question here is, where's the value add, and that's the problem that you find Saint Thomas Aquinas, Saint Augustine, Saint John Chrysostom, Saint Basil, Saint Gregory the Great, Pope Saint John and Paul II identifying with speculation is that you, the reason why we're able to charge for anything, or morally speaking, here, not not um, not scientifically speaking, but morally speaking, is because we have given some sort of real gift to someone else through our work. And so we are able to receive a commutative um, reward for that work. But with speculation, there is no work done, there is no value add, there is no greater benefit for the community.
1: We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martsoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? Before we get into the interview itself, I want to quickly acknowledge and apologize for the suboptimal quality of my audio. I did not realize until it was too late that my audio recording software had defaulted to a secondary microphone, which was lower quality and set farther away from me than the primary microphone. However, Jacob Imam's audio is high quality and the conversation was stimulating, so I decided to proceed with releasing the episode. I've learned a valuable lesson about checking software settings. I hope that you enjoy the episode despite the imperfections. Thank you. My guest today is Jacob Imam. Jacob is the executive director of New Polity, which is, and I quote, a think tank located in Steubenville, Ohio, focused on being a stable center for post-liberal ideas to be proposed Debated, corrected, and developed in an environment of academic seriousness and free from the constraints and ideological pressures of the modern university system. Jacob is currently writing his doctoral thesis on theology and economics at Oxford as a prize scholar. So, welcome, Jacob. I'm really excited to have this conversation. We're going to be talking primarily about theology and economics, but our conversation will cover a number of other topics as well. So, welcome. Hey, thanks so much. It's good to be with you. So, I want to start out with a question that might feel a little off topic, but I actually feel like it might be relevant. So uh, here goes. So what is the moral status of Parish Bingo Night?
0: Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, recently, I was asked in an debate about an article in the Catechism about the permissibility of gambling. And gambling is, is a tough one, you know, because it's not just an economic enterprise. You know, I'm sure that the Catechism is not saying, go carte blanche, here you go, Las Vegas. It's something probably that's more in the familial setting for fun for friendship and rather than it as a way of poaching people that's something that the tradition is clearly against but uh you know that's something that i think you know needs to be weighed by by a pastor in understanding what's going on with with his flock rather than um uh, just giving a general hard line on on that issue
1: sure Okay. So, you know, as a Catholic, I'm always looking for new things to talk about in confession. So I was really excited <laughs> to hear your piece on investing because now I can feel guilty about my 401k. So I really appreciated you giving me that opportunity to find something new to confess about. I was sort of running out of things, and, and here I am now with my 401k. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your work yeah. on Christianity investing, particularly yeah. investing in the stock market. I know that term investing, you questioned even that term investing. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah. So I want to start with some philosophical and theoretical groundwork related to, again, your deconstruction of stock owning as such. So Mm -hmm. first question is, what is the point, the end, the telos? Of investing?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So Pope St. John Paul II gives his definition of investing for in, Centesimus, in the encyclical that he wrote in 1991. And he said there that to invest is to offer people a chance to make good use of their labor. So in other words, it's a chance to dignify the labor of your neighbor. The, the idea here is that you are trying to build people up. He actually puts this conversation of investing, yeah right next to his conversation, charitable giving, and in, in actually qualifies that term because all throughout the patristic era in the, in the early church, as well as bringing all the way through to the modern era in encyclicals and in the catechism, the 1996 catechism that is, there's this understanding within the Catholic tradition that if you have any funds beyond what you need, meaning what you need to use to provide for those under your care then the remainder must go to the poor, to the indigent. This is based in a larger principle of the universal destination of earthly goods that we can get into or not. I'll let you decide on that. But within that principle, you have to ask the question about what about investing? Precisely because invested funds are definitionally superfluous funds. They're not funds that you need to use right now for your needs. They're not things that you're going to use even within a moderate uh, future oftentimes or approximate future. So how do you handle that? Do those just need to go to the poor as well? John Paul II says, well, they don't, but they still need to be utilized in a way that cultivates the kingdom of God, the city of God, and cultivates a greater unity between peoples. Ultimately, it's for the dignity of man that we invest. And that has to be our lodestar, our guiding guiding
1: principle when, when we do. Right. So how did the point of investing change when institutions of commerce went from societies or societists to companies? How did that change the point of investing?
0: Yeah, great question. So what, what you're alluding to here is what the medievals would call as a business partnership or a societas. This word was used generally in medieval Latin to refer to everything between like friendships to also marriages and man and woman coming together as man and and woman. But it also had a technical meaning as well, and that defined a particular type of business relationship where you had a stand, somebody who invested money in a truck or in somebody that would, a merchant that would go down, say, to Portugal to buy wine and to bring it back to the community, which, you know, is the example that often is used in, in these medieval tr- treatises and wine being not only, you know, a... Kind of the default drink because you need some alcohol in there to kill some bacteria, but also because it is utilized for the for the liturgy itself. So, so that's the model where a tractor was was sent somewhere to purchase something, bring it back, and then they would split the profits between the two of them after all the costs weren't covered. All the all the merchants' costs were covered. Now, Raymond de Rouvre was probably one of the greatest economic historians of the last century if not if not the greatest said that it would be a mistake to understand the Stans, the investor, as just a, a sleeping partner. In fact, he was someone that would advise the merchant on what to do, and once he got back, he would be in the game, helping him sell whatever he had. He was actually invested in multiple senses. He was invested personally, as well as financially. His work was oriented to cultivating that. Now, you can tell right here, the investment was not so much an investment in an entity, but rather in a person. And it was a joint activity. I think that's the best definition that we have for societas. No you know, there's not one way in which the this sort of relationship Logically, you know, came to culminate in the modern company. But we can tell a number of differences. When I purchase a company, I am purchasing a legal entity. I'm not. I'm not part of an us anymore. I'm buying an it in the same way as I would buy a table, a chair, or a coffee. But what does that actually communicate? Well, what am I actually buying? What am I actually buying is actually the labor of others, where I am actually possessing the claim, the fruit of others' labors. So in a real sense, and I say this, you know, hoping that it's not as provocative as as the term may sound, there is a modern form of servility introduced in the ownership of a company that never existed in medieval relationships. Even you look right after... Thomas Aquinas died. You find in the late 90s of the of the 1200s, the form of a of a company arising, but that is a cooperative. Actually, the like the Peruzzi company is a, is a great example of this. Everybody was an investor. Everybody was laboring in the endeavors. You only got in, you got out what you put in, um, prorated to to whatever that amount was. So it was a very different system. That understanding of owning someone's labor was was just categorized as slavery or categorized as Servitude, but it wasn't categorized as fine in the way that we we, you know, categorize it that way today.
1: Right. So, in this sense, if investing is supporting the labor of another. Mm-hmm. What is stock investing, even investing at all? And you alluded to this in your previous comment, but I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Well,
0: I mean, the previous comment could actually still stand, obviously, for a private company. But when you're talking about stocks in publicly traded companies, then you get into some really hairy area because when you're buying stocks, you're doing that on what's called the secondary market, what we colloquially call the stock market. So in this regard, you are not giving money to a company. You're not giving money to them for their ventures. You're rather giving that money to another person. In a sense, it's more akin to going to the grocery store and buying milk than it is actually investing in a company and in, in the work and the labor of another. It's, it's rather rather than actually starting a grocery, you're just going and shopping at it, you know. So that's the way that things are are done you're not making money through interest you're not making money through dividend or, or through um well you are I mean, we call them dividends but that's a kind of a different it's a misnomer in some ways but uh, you're not making money through the profits of of the company a prorated set of profits to the to the company rather you're you're making money through price indexing depending on what the stock can sell for at the market at the time so technically speaking it's not investing it's speculating now speculating now has a pejorative term today we talk about high risk investments you know risk big to win big but technically the technical meaning of speculation is buying something not to use it, but to hold on to it until the price has risen, only to sell it later on. Now, of course, that could be very risky. It could also not be risky. Risk is not the telling factor on what distinguishes investment from speculation. It's whether or not there's value add and people involved that, that really define speculation as speculation.
1: So then a little bit more here, What what is the, in terms of the Catholic Church, what is the particularly morally suspect issue with speculation as such? Because you equated it to purchasing milk. If it's sort of synonymous with the act of purchasing milk, that seems not so morally suspect.
0: It's not. Yeah, no, good question. We, you know, with milk, you know, that, that's probably a bad example because the point of milk is, you know, drink it. Um, <laughs> th- Think rather about like scalpers in an NFL game or an MLB game or something like that. What they have done is they purchase a ticket from the ticket box and then they go to the street once all the tickets are sold out and they mark up the price. The question here is where's the value add? And that's the problem that you find St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, St. Gregory, the great Pope St. John and Paul II identifying with speculation is that the reason why we're able to charge for anything, or morally speaking here, not not um, not scientifically speaking, but morally speaking, is because we have given some sort of real gift to someone else through our work. And so we are able to receive a commutative um, reward for that work. But with Speculation. There is no work done. There is no value add. There is no greater benefit for the community, and that's the problem that the tradition has, you know, really since the beginning identified. I mean, you look even at Saint Paul's declaration to the Thessalonians, when he says, "If you don't work, you shall not eat." And perergazoma is a word that he uses there to speak about busybodies. He identifies those who don't work and uh, just are a leech on the community is is, is this you know, what we translate as busy buys, but periergizomai. And uh, you look through, you know, how that term is used in various periods in Greek history. And it often is a uh, fine, you know, some dictionaries identify it as uh, haggling in the market or buying up goods in the market. It's this similar principle that's coming out. If you're not adding value to the community, if you're making money, if you're able to earn a living through enterprises that are very clever and very, um, strategic, you can say, but not actually good for the community, then there's a there's a problem. And that just gets away from this
1: kind of more fundamental point of actually loving neighbor, yeah. which is
0: at the heart of Christianity.
1: What about this idea that if you invest in the stock market and you get a gain, you mm-hmm. can then reinvest that into real things, right? You can give it to your church or you can grow the economy. We know that the economy as yeah. such is part of the common good. I guess there's this question of the ends don't justify the means, but to a certain <laughs> extent they could, right? Could it? <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm asking the
0: questions here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the tradition's pretty clear on this one, too. I mean, St. Paul, you know, he writes in Romans that let us not do evil that good may come of it. Pope Paul VI, you know, says we can never. Claim that, and he uses very direct and and very damning language in his encyclical Humanae Vitae*. When somebody tries to put forward that utilitarian argument, and then John Paul second, Pope St. John Paul II, wrote an entire encyclical uh, *Veritatis Splendor* on that very problem. And the answer is we can't, you know, and and the reason is clear too: is that we must always seek after the good, and we must cultivate the good through the good. So, so that's when it pertains to actually being able to take the funds received from investing and use it for another, you know, actually good enterprise or charitable giving, it does fall prey to that. But it also, we have to ask the question of why would we ever actually invest? Like, what is the good that's done in investing that would make the act itself worthwhile? You know, that's actually a really big question. And it might, not actually come across all that clear at first because somebody said, well, the good is getting the money. And he's like, yeah, I understand. That's the reason why you want to do that. But like what is the good of the act itself? Now, if I invest in a you know in a coffee shop, say, then I can actually see the fruits of my investment. I can see people gathering. I can see people enjoying the coffee. I can see you know the you know communal events hosted. I can see people actively enjoying what it is I'm putting my money behind. But if there's not a clear answer to why am I speculating in this way? Where does the act itself that's, that's good, then we're doing it just for the sake of profit. And a Christian can never do anything just for the sake of profit. God's enemy mammon is just too much you know, yeah. against, against us there. So,
1: <laughs> so would you consider it morally permissible then to participate in an IPO wherein the actual cat gets transferred to a company in order to expand and grow?
0: Yeah, it's a a great question. You know, that is a very long conversation about IPOs. There's a number of questions about it. One is when you are, you know, book runner for an IPO or something of the sort, then your ultimate purpose is to sell those stocks later on. And so while you might at first have promissory of dividends, you, you often don't, you know, for companies that are, they're just becoming public because they are in a early season of hyper growth. And so those early companies usually don't give out dividends. Then you are actually engaging or even aiding in the process of speculation going on, the other question, and this is just a longer one I'll just toss this out to you know for us to think about is well actually, I'll toss out two things, but one of them is just growth rates you know is that is i p o s really do enable a company to grow? at an exponential rate. And, is, and there's a question about that and a question about globalization that I think you know, we need to consider before we just say that's good. But the other thing is that once you are a public company, the game's up. You are always then, your main goal for your company is then always to have continual growth. And that means that the original mission of what you're producing and why you're producing it is not always the focus. Facebook could become Meta. You know, the, it's just whatever pumps up um, your your value, the, whatever you're, you to pump up the the price of what your stocks are trading for. And often that comes through share buybacks, and which is the main technique that companies are utilizing today to boost their profits. Again, they're, or not boost their profits, boost their stock price. They're using their profits to increase their stock price which does not communicate or really correlate to the real benefit and the real growth that the company is engaged in. I mean, just look at Apple from 2015 to 2021. Their stock price quadrupled, and yet their profits were the same. It invites more financial techniques to For companies to utilize that put off innovation. I mean, that's a huge problem. I I hope all of us recognize that major innovations are not occurring at the same rate as they were even 40 years ago. And in addition to that, you have a wider gap between rich and the poor that that occurs. And and
1: that's just one of these de facto things that we have to come to terms with. So if you think about the financial manager of a diocese, what's the justification for speculation in the stock market? Is it just that they don't see it as in the same way that you do. They don't see it as speculation or they just haven't thought it through. They've considered it and disagree with you. What's the, what's the justification, you know, of, a you know, your average financial manager of a diocese.
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. There's a number of responses, so a lot of them just have not thought about it at all. This is just what we've been doing, you know, for decades now. And so if it's just what we're doing, it can't really be all that wrong, right? right? I think that's a major thing. And I just have a ton of patience for everybody who's in that situation. I was in that situation. That was me. You know, it just was not a question on our radar. You know, so that's I think a, a big side of it. I think this question of ethical investments that have started to percolate in in recent years. That's a good direction to go. But we're again just we're only considering the content of our portfolios and not the form of speculation or of the stock market itself, which needs to be questioned. But what else could they say? Well, they could say something, and you hear this actually a lot amongst folks at the Acton Institute, is that, well, work actually has always been the justification uh, for earning a return on your profit as well as risk and there it's right those are true that's true work and risk are always you know the the keys and they say that risk there's there's intellectual work being done and there's always risk But then there's still the same question. It's like, yes, there's always intellectual work being done, but that's equating work with almost expending of energy. So you can charge for almost anything at that point and that doesn't seem right. And in fact it's not right. You know, there's work in there's work in, in arranging a prostitution ring. There's work done in, you know, running large scale casinos, you know? And you'd be out of your mind and downright evil to say that those things are okay. Now, there's a proper it's like you know, I like to make that analogy to studying, you know, studying is good, but there is studiositas and there's curiositas, a virtue and a vice in the tradition, and studying studiositas is really to try and be docile to the ways of the world so that ultimately you can engage in predicare right, to preach, to be able to declare truth, to understand it better, and, and it ultimately comes back to the common good, to help people see Christ's face more clearly, and, then, and thus to be able to love Him more deeply. But in Curiositas, that's manipulative. You're doing it just kind of as a, you know, an auto-erotic practice almost. And ultimately it's for manipulation of, of the world or your own um pride um, or place of pride of place within it. It's not for the common good. And the same problem Um, harms work or or faces work. The other issue is risk, and they say, look, in the medieval tradition, risk actually did allow for you to earn something back on your investments, and I have to say absolutely, they're completely correct. But risk for the medievals, and this is very clear in their treatises, I would, you know, commend Peter John of Alevy, for instance, as well as St. Thomas Aquinas. But risk for them was not a principle, it was rather a sign. Okay, so what does that mean? That it's a principle, not a sign. It was, or rather, it was a sign and not a principle. I had that backwards. Risk revealed true ownership in an enterprise. That when you handed that money over to the tractor, to the merchant, to whoever was starting a new venture, that your risk revealed that you were totally engaged with that person. You had formed a true societas so that his loss was your loss. His win was your win. And that every time he spent a dollar, it was as if you were spending that same dollar. So risk was a sign of that principle of true ownership. But what what you find in Renaissance and onwards is that risk actually was just a principle itself, and but that's a non-revealing principle as far as I can tell because everything in life has risk, you know.
1: So this is actually uh, a, a really good um, moment to switch gears a little bit because I was actually going to ask you in the next set of questions about this concept of ownership. So that's a good um, transition. So. Does holding stock in a company comprise actual ownership of the company? And you allude to that just now, but I'll ask you directly. Yeah, it's a great question a tough
0: one in some ways. I like to refer back to the venerable Fulton Sheen. He was just such a beautiful man. I love him so dearly. And, I have my Fulton um, Sheen t-shirt on right now. Oh, no kidding. Look at yeah, that. Hey, <laughs> all right. So your hero and mine was, you know, asked this question once and he, he responded, you know, in, I should preface this with, I mean, what an amicable guy, you know? I mean, he's just so lovely. It's easy to love him, you know? And yet he was never scared of the truth, you know. And and so he wrote once, and these are his words, is that defenders of capitalism sensing evil in their market how did he phrase that actually? Sorry, sensing evil in their system, I think is what it was. Like to defend it by saying it has greater, more widespread ownership than ever, pointing to the fact that nobody owns more than 4% in this major corporation that is owned by baseball players and teachers and heck, even babies sometimes. But then he he turns and he says, you know, but is that real ownership? Everybody recognizes it as it pertains to the farmer with his horse. That he not only has the right to use this horse and to ride the horse, but he also has a responsibility for caring for that horse. Now, as it pertains to stocks, we often forget that the same principle should apply. So does it apply? And most of the time, 99% of the time, it does not. Um, We do not have responsibility over the companies that we are investing in, especially if it's a mutual fund. We have no ability to do so. At all. We've we've surrendered that right completely. We're just buying individual stock in a company. We we rarely get to the place where we have. Any say over it? You can refer to a worker, and you say, "Okay, there's a good special exception there," or if somebody that's on the board, if you own a significant amount or percentage amount. But there, you have a more difficult problem where it actually doesn't track the natural outlay of ownership. Now, Pope John Paul II understood ownership, and not just him. I could refer back to, um, you know, uh, Saint Bonaventure, who wrote, who wrote the preeminent treatise on this in the Middle Ages as well. Understood ownership not to just be a legal injury juridical matter, but a natural and metaphysical one. Whereas the more that you work the earth, or whatever enterprise it is, the more that you cultivate it, the more it starts to be impressed with your image and likeness in the same way that God can claim ownership of the whole universe, because in some ways it reflects His likeness. Nothing is perfectly as as humanity, of course, but we have this long tradition in, in the in the catholic in uh, intellectual tradition that, that understands that everything in some ways reflects god okay so if ownership in some ways has this metaphysical backbone to it then it builds up slowly in correlation with the work that we're expending the cultivation that we are you know that we are engaged in but if we're just buying ownership of a company of of the stock then there's not that natural progression in ownership that really demands our responsibility over it okay so there's there's this part but I, you know i like to also just make the joke is like if i you know go into ford to see the uh, the long assembly lines you know i'm not going to be as a you know because i'm a proud owner of stock i'm not going to be welcomed you right. know as an august owner of the company i'm going to be dragged out by security and even if you you know take a look at you know the bankruptcy laws i don't even have to get informed if my company goes under i don't even get a natural right i have to fight for getting any little bit of the leftover assets i mean the the sense in which i own is is very ephemeral i would say
1: another concern that you have with stock owning is this question of the evils committed by companies that people own but at the same time we don't really own them so our shareholders, you know, and I mean normal shareholders like you or I that own a couple of stocks in Ford mm-hmm. or Apple or whatever company you're thinking about. I'm not a shareholder. I should just oh, sorry, say People sorry. Yeah, yeah. like you. But you're a normal person. If you you. I stuff. appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, But say, say uh, you know, uh, normal people that have a 401k and they own a bit of Apple and a bit of Ford, but you're arguing that they don't really own those companies in a meaningful way are they then morally culpable for the evils committed by those companies if they don't have any say over what happens anyway?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And there's there's a number of answers to this. One is that... There's a couple of different ways of answering this. The first thing that I would like to say about it is that at the very least it caused a scandal. So last year it was discovered that Pope Francis, you know, who's, who's technically in control of the Vatican Bank, was investing in companies that performed abortions and created abortifacients. A lot of money in the Vatican Bank was invested in these companies. Now, what did that do? Well, that caused a considerable amount of scandal for the church, and that is that's a serious consideration. Actually, causing scandal can be a sin in our tradition, and it's something to be avoided. And it actually is the the vice that opposes the virtue of beneficence, um, according to Saint Thomas. So, so, the first thing that we have to do is avoid scandal. There is a question, of course, that also people would not be underwriting IPOs if they didn't know that somebody would buy it later. So in some way, you are participating or giving justification to somebody you know, giving that original money to the company in the first place. And then there's also, lastly, another predicament of the, the very distant material cooperation where companies can get greater lines of credit as long as the stock price is getting pushed up. So we, do we have meaningful ownership? No, but there's just kind of enough of an attachment there to make it bad. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and not enough. On the other side, to say that look, I'm doing meaningful work. If it was a good company, you
1: know. <laughs> As I'm listening to you, I mean, obviously you're functioning out of the tradition, you know, the Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. and I do not believe that we need to argue from a secular position. I think that our justification for for why we shouldn't should not do things is self sufficient. But at the same time we are engaged in the public square to a certain extent. Have you had conversations with your sort of run-of-the-mill fund manager, you know, guy on Wall Street? How do how do your ideas sit with them? Is it just blank stares or is there, does what you're saying make any sense outside of appealing to papal encyclicals?
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Well, you know, not all of this it does just come down to matters of morality. I mean, the National Bureau of Economic Research Uh, did a long study and found that from 1989 to 2017, there is real equity growth in the States of $34 trillion. And yet only 25% of that was attributable to Production of real goods and the performance of real services, and that the majority was engaged with financial techniques and price indexing. So, with share buybacks is one of their major focus, one of the things they majorly focus on in, in the article. So, th- I mean, this is not just—I mean, this is fundamentally a moral issue. I mean, everything is a moral issue. Whatever we do, it's either a virtue or a vice. There's no black. There's no you know in between this black or white. You know, sadly, in some t- some cases, but. But it does give a problem that our economy is actually just getting worse. And we see this quite clearly around us. Our food is getting worse. Our buildings are uglier. Their their longevity is, is certainly waning. You know our ch- our clothes are cheaper. I mean, look if food, shelter, and clothing aren't aren't doing as well as they once did, then you know we got to change something. And and more than that, we actually do have a significant breakdown of the family in in society as well. You know, an increase in anxiety, increase in in an increase in suicide, and these are these are major problems because work is not as dignified as it once was. We are more cogs in the machine than creative perf- in the economy. And this is this is a major concern not just to catholics but it should be a major concern to just about everybody. When I share this, I mean people are concerned but we also are deeply in love with our portfolios. It's a way of getting easy money and the fact that it has become so normalized for us, That we think that we're going to be impoverished, that we're going to be destitute, that we're going to be on the streets without actually having our portfolios anymore. And that was a little bit of my worry. Actually, what am I saying? That was a huge worry of mine as I was kind of anxiously, you know, over my computer asking the question, should I divest? And my wife likes to mock me for that, you know, because it really was <laughs> quite painful. Yeah. But out of it, I feel so free, you know, and I've talked to so many that now have divested as well. And they, that's just the reoccurring thing that I hear from everybody. I just feel free. I'm not calculating all the time. I'm not worrying about the future all the time. I'm cultivating my my family in a better way. I'm cultivating my friendships in a better way. We're more bound together in love. And that is is our focus. So anxiety levels have just dropped tremendously. And and praise God for that. It's once you are out of the kind of the rat race and, and out of the system and seeing that, hey, that, it's actually okay over here. It's okay. it's actually okay to be out of the market. I'm not destitute. I'm not on the streets. You know, am I poor? Of course I am. Am I happier? You bet
1: I am. This brings us to a really practical question. So say for example, someone had three or four hundred thousand dollars in a four hundred one K, hypothetically yeah. speaking, and wanted to pull the money out, what would you tell them to do with it? And also recognizing the fact that there's like major financial implications for divesting early from the four hundred one K, what would you tell them to do? Yeah. What
0: age are they? I mean, I would, you know, it's different. For say, age. for example,
1: they are 42. It's <laughs> <This is> all very <laughs> <pretty> hypothetical.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I say, you know, at 42, you got 17 years before you're able to take that money out without penalty. And even still, when you take that money out, you're not able to take it out. You're going to feel hindered to take that money out in large quantities precisely because you're going to get taxed at whatever income uh, you're at inclusive of that money. If we're talking about 401ks here in in the traditional 401k here. So in that regard, you know, it's not going to make you feel free to wait and look at all the good that you could do now. So yes, you're going to get that 10% hit and you're also going to get taxed at the income that you're at right now. So you're going to lose money. But you're going to gain so much freedom, not just in the the question about anxiety and all that, but you actually get to start using that money now. That's a significant sum, you know. If you had four hundred thousand, was that the number you said? Yeah, sure. In the in the market, I mean, you know, with with all the tax that you're going to get hit on that, you're looking maybe something at two hundred seventy thousand dollars out of that, inclusive of whatever you're making this year. Let's say it's you know sixty or something like that's a significant hit, you know, that's, that's nothing to, to scoff at. So at that point, you have to focus more on the fact that you've gained 250000 there, thereabout, 200000 there, thereabout, and not actually lost, you know, whatever you had, because that was never money that you actually had creative possession over in the first place look at what you've gained not what you've lost there so many
1: more practically what, what would you tell me to do with it right now if i i pulled yeah i have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. what would you tell me to do with
0: it i'll tell you like a few things that that we're involved in we live in a dilapidated rust belt town in the middle of nowhere you know one of these small cities of i'd say about three quarters of our downtown is boarded up there's very little that we have here and that we want to have a stable center to begin growth. One of the great things about our town is that when you don't really have anything, you have real relationships. You have great bonds of charity with one another. So we're trying to start to build up our economy in a way is not to lose those bonds along that way. So we're trying to cultivate a kind of a hub in downtown and that's a brewery. So we have Two amazing guys who worked at breweries before, moved into town to start the brewery. Um, uh, One's been here for quite some time now here. I mean, I'll spare you a long story, but it's just so exciting to see them fully alive with great ideas, not just great recipes for how to cultivate the community in a better way. You know, we have the mystery cycle plays that we want to perform in the brewery, which are um, the liturgical plays of medieval Christendom that actually brought the liturgical calendar to life by being enacted, and not just in the halls of the church, but actually in the public square, bringing religion to the fore, there's things like that obviously i love their business model i think it's a thing of beauty and we're really excited to to help this thing get going there's a you know a project uh, a new film on blessed carl of hungary that i'm really excited about um you know of the same ilk of the movies of beckett or man for all seasons and I think movies movies are something that have kind of destroyed the American mind. My wife and I don't have a television, but they also do serve some sort of remedial tool. And certainly to be able to screen a saint, you know, is something that I'm personally excited about. Some people aren't excited about that, but it's phenomenal people whose labor I want to dignify it in a message that I think will really help a lot of people. So that's one thing, you know, we're we're considering in, you know investing in, in a roofing company right now, like getting real people to work again using their hands and again, high in a high skilled craft, you know, where you're not just putting on, you know, uh, gross asphalt tiles, but nice slate again, and learning how to do these sort of things. So, I mean, just because you can't invest in the market, it can't, doesn't mean they can't invest in like real businesses. Obviously, I think for a lot of us, we have to also come to terms with, you know am I how much money am I actually putting in investments versus how much am I just giving away and so far we 've tried to kind of play at a fifty fifty principle of giving away you know half uh, to charity is what we ha what we 're giving to towards investments again kind of at that necessity principle you know how much more do these charitable enterprises need versus you know our friends' labor being dignified and that 's just a real question, and we might not be doing it right, but i think we 're we're at least like stumbling in the right direction,
1: yeah I've noticed that you know your concern and you you just touched on this again, your concern about four one ks are not relegated to the morality of stock investing, but more broadly saving for retirement. You had some critical pieces about the even the concept of saving for retirement. Yeah, how do you understand the concept of financial stewardship? That I've seen a number of responses to your work on saving for retirement, and it's always about financial stewardship. How do you understand that idea? Could you spell out the critique a bit more? Oh, just the idea that it's sort of irresponsible not to save for your retirement because it's taking good care of your money and also sort of planning for your future and planning for your children's future. And it's just a way to be careful with your money such that you don't end up being destitute when you're 65 years old and you don't have an undue burden on your children. So it's just a way to you know, steward your money properly mm-hmm. such that you're planning for the future.
0: Yeah. You know, it is a great question that so many of us have because so many of us have been trained to think that way. And I just don't think that's a, a proper way to think, but let me back up and try and give more reasons than just that answer there. The way that kind of the default mentality for us is in retirement is to be with our kids. That's just the way that God designed it, is that we are going to be at the end of our life needing help. We came into the world that way. None of us could survive if it wasn't for our parents originally nurturing us, raising us. I mean, it takes us a very long time to be self-sufficient as human beings. And our life is actually bookended in that same way oftentimes, where we do need help at the end to take care of ourselves. And what money does is not enable you to be independent. You're not independent. You're just paying someone you don't know to take care of you. You're always going to be taken care of by somebody, but it's either someone that you know and you love or somebody you don't know and you pay. Uh, This is a major principle of St. Thomas Aquinas that money takes a place for where love lacks. I can either pay my friends that help me move my piano or I could pay a moving company to do that, right? We all have a million examples of this in our in our life. And that's the same question as it pertains to retirement. Now also in retirement, we have to make sure that we realize that we're not just taking a 20, 30 year vacation. John Paul II says that work is fundamental to humanity, which means that if we give up on work, we're giving up on the cultivation of true humanity. That hits hard. That's tough to come to terms with. It's not fun to hear oftentimes at first. But we also, I think many of us have examples of this where we see our family and our friends retiring and they just become more sluggish. They're not as sharp. They're not as fun. They're more vicious. And that hurts to see you know your loved ones go through that you also see this kind of fundamentally in in sacred scripture as well when when jesus tells the the parable of of the rich fool he has a bumper crop and he tears down his storehouses and he any he, and he builds bigger ones and says To himself, you know, soul, go at rest, because you have you have all that you need. I mean, is that not a story of retirement? I don't need the work anymore. I've stored up enough that I need. But what does Jesus say to him in the parable? What does God say to him in the parable? You fool! You fool! You don't want God to tell you, you fool. I mean, that's not a good thing to be called. You know. So this is this is a major concern for us in the way that in the pattern and order of our society where you work really hard, you try and retire around 65 between your 401k, your pension and your in your social security and you go on a vacation just to as as someone recently said, pay, play and pray, you know? That's not what we're designed for. We're designed for so much more. And part of the way that we begin to rebuild our great country is by building the family back up. Um even the guy who created uh, the 401k Ted Benna, he he bemoaned the fact that 401ks actually started to break down the family, which, you know, is quite compelling to hear from from him, from his authority and from his vantage. So, you know, Christ calls us to something more. And I know not everybody listening to this podcast is a Catholic or even a Christian, but that call is there for all of us, that God himself is has created us, and he's created the order of the world in a particular way, and rebelling from that order is not going to free us more. It's going to hamper us. It's going to cause more anxiety, and leaning into it is is going to indeed make us happier, because that's what he designed us for.
1: You know, that sort of claim is so countercultural that I suspect even my own kids at their very young age have internalized the fact that mom and dad are supposed to take care of themselves after they retire. Mm-hmm. And, and having that conversation with your kids, I think after they've been trained for 10 to 12 years and thinking that, you know, we ha- we could take care of ourselves in retirement, I think would be a hard conversation. It is in some ways. And, you know, but I, I mean, my mom,
0: you know, she used to say this jokingly and seriously when I was growing up, she had like the name of the retirement home that she wanted to go and move into in mind, And she would always say when she forgot something, she'd make the joke. It's like, just remember, this is where I want you to send me. This is where I want you to send me. You know, when a few years ago, uh, you know, I just, I had to look her in the eye and say like, I'm not sending you there. You know, I love you way too much. I want to be by my mom. I want to live with her. I want to take care of her. And uh anyway, it took her a little bit to kind of get used to that because you don't want to be a burden on your kids, right? I mean, that's, question, but I, you know, there's, but gosh, it's just an honor to be able to get to do that for your parents. We, you know, we you know, played some role in helping my godfather die well some years ago. And that was, you know, certainly, you know, one of the greatest moments of, you know, greatest honors of our, our life. One of the most horrible, I loved him so much to see him go, but uh, you know, at least, you know, you never have like regrets at the end. And also I would say, you know, I know this, at least for me, is that there is kind of that last injection of humility in your life when you have to, after living decades, you know, being self-sufficient, taking care, being a leader in many ways, that now you have to be taken care of again. That helps us to prepare for death well, um, to be able to to have the humility we need to be able to see Christ more clearly.
1: In my opinion, this changed quite a bit uh, after reading, I don't know if you've read george saunders short story the 10th of december you know i have it but, but this is essentially the story where a man has cancer he goes out to kill himself he finds a boy fall through the ice he pulls the boy out of the ice realizing that if he had killed himself he would have deprived his wife and children of the the great honor of being able to care for him as he died and that was very that was very chastening for me to think about what i owe to my children and allowing them to care for me as i'm dying yeah well, Jacob, we're coming at the end of time. I know that you have uh, an international flight to catch, yeah. so I don't want to make you late. But I, I really appreciate you coming on, talking with me. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, I've just I'm so grateful for the work that that you and Andrew, and Mark are doing in Steubenville, and I'm I'm really grateful for your faithfulness uh, to the kingdom of God. I, I hope that we have a chance to continue this conversation because it's been a lot of fun.
0: Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it myself, and I
1: it, it, we will get you over here at one point. Awesome, that'd be great. Thanks so much, Jacob. All right, God bless you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, .org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.